This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Well, I know the community of realtors here in Arkansas absolutely adored her. The day that she disappeared, a number of them just closed down and went out to look for her, speaking about how bright she was. She always had a smile, always willing to help. I know she adored her son and his wife, and she was just really well-liked. For this week's case on True Crime Chronicles, we travel to Little Rock, Arkansas. It's 2014, and 50-year-old Beverly Carter is a successful real estate broker, mother of two, and she's been married for 34 years. She absolutely loved real estate. She, you know, it's such a stressful job, and it's, you know, so many moving parts, and she just navigated with, um, that whole process with, with such ease and such grace. This is Beverly's son, Carl Jr. Whenever I think about my mom, like when I think about one word and I think of the word resilient, my mom had just a lifetime just full of setbacks and you know tragedies. I have a brother that passed away, and so you know, navigating the life of or, you know life after losing a child, um, but she always would just bounce back. On September twenty fifth. Beverly has one final appointment before heading home. Around 5.30, she told someone she was going to go show a home in Scott, Arkansas, which is a tiny little town outside of Little Rock. This is Dawn Scott. She's an anchor for KTHV in Little Rock, Arkansas. She even told her husband that she had one last showing and she would pick up dinner and come home when it was over with. So the day in and of itself, I remember vividly because it started out one of the best days that I'd had in a long time. The weather was great. You know, it was late September, so it was just, you know, a touch of fall in the air. Beautiful sunny day. And so, you know, I left school, you know, 10 minutes later, went home and went for a run through my neighborhood. And my mom was a popular agent in in our county that we live in. So just within my neighborhood alone, as I went for my evening job, um, you know, I passed by three different listings of my mom's and seeing, you know, her sign in the yard and made a mental note to, uh, you know, I need to talk to mom. I haven't talked to her in a couple of days. Um, Having no idea, you know, while I'm in this kind of euphoric run, life is great, that it's literally in that exact same time that my mom was on this appointment. The house Beverly is going to be showing is a bit of a drive from her office, but it's a well-known property that she's been trying to sell for some time. Everyone in my family knew about this particular home. We sat on the same lake that my parents' uh, house sat on, um, just on the same road for this particular property is where the, the pastor of my mom's church lived. You know, I, I always kind of cringe when I hear people say, like, it's just a sleepy little neighborhood that literally people brag about not locking their doors. And so mom told dad, she said, look, you know, that couple that I've been telling you that I'm working with, they're relocating here. Um, they want to see that property across the lake. I'm going to show it to them. But the appointment runs way over time. And very quickly, Beverly's husband, Carl Sr., begins to worry. About... 8.40 that evening, 
I was just kind of getting settled in for, for the night and I got a call from my dad and he had worry in his voice and he said, son, I've been trying to get your mom on the phone, but you know, she's not answering my texts or replying to my texts. She's not answering phone calls. I'm worried about her. And truth be told, like just knowing how hectic the real estate you know, business can be, I just kind of was, you know, kind of rolling my eyes on the other end of the phone because my dad, come on, man, you know, she's writing a contract or, you know, they brought in family and they're looking at the house again, just give her some time. But I could hear worry in his voice that I'd really never heard before. And he said, son, you know, mom said her appointment was at six and I'm just, I'm worried. And so I told him that I would get around and go to my mom's real estate office to see if she was there. Um, her office was in close proximity to my home. And I encouraged him to go over to that, that lake house that she said that she'd be showing. And sure enough, we both arrived at you know, our respective destinations at the same time. Of course, there's no activity um, at my mom's real estate office. But when dad arrived at that house that night, you know, he arrives to a scene where you have this vacant home with no utility, so it's pitch black, half acre lots on the lake, super dark, yet he sees my mom's SUV up in the driveway of his property. Carl Sr. frantically searches the house and property for Beverly. He checks closets and bedrooms, even going into the attic and checking the tall grasses outside. Police arrive a few minutes later. They were asking my dad about what might have happened, what was going on. And it was then in that moment that I realized that the law enforcement were asking dad questions as if he were a suspect. And it was kind of, if you can imagine, like we're trying to just as regular everyday people with very, the only knowledge we had about the real estate business, just being from the stories that we've heard from my mom through the years. And so we're trying to piece together business scenarios that make her okay and justify why she wouldn't be answering her phone. Also trying to satisfy, you know, to, to assist, I should say, the law enforcement, the detectives on the scene, and while weighing the fact that my dad is a nervous wreck, you know, he's sitting off in the distance in his truck, smoking cigarette after cigarette, looking so guilty. Um, And you just, you know, you want to be the person that's like, just kind of stands up and screams and waves your arms and just like, look, I know how this looks, but I promise that's not what this is. Everybody take my word for it. We need to be moving fast. Carl and his father remain at the lake house with investigators for hours. More and more police vehicles show up, covering the entire neighborhood and lake water in blue light. And so they're waking people up and they're, you know, door knocking, asking all the neighbors if they've seen anything. And all the while, you know, the later it got, the fewer explanations we could come up with. You know, the optimism was fading. A few minutes passed, and my dad's cell phone, like, starts lighting up with text from my mom. We go from, like, just complete horror, confusion, to just 
complete elation and i'll be honest i was actually a little embarrassed because i was like i was like oh my gosh mom is going to have explained this one the texts come in maybe 20 seconds apart from one another and so the first the first text says yes and so it's like well guess what <laughs> and then the next one is um sorry phone's been dead and then the third text that came in let us know that my mom was in trouble and the third text said, sorry, and I'll have drinks with friends. What this string was intended to throw us all off, to buy the bad guy some time, really all it did was 100% confirm that she had been taken and someone was pretending to be her. You know, when we arrived on the scene that night, you know, to, to look into to mom's car, which had been left locked. So dad had to go back home, get the extra set of keys to, to access her car. Inside was a real estate folder that mom had created for the, these clients that she'd been helping. And then also was my mom's purse with everything in it, with her billfold in it, everything. So it was just like my mom, her car keys and her phone just disappeared, but everything else was there. It confirmed this looming fear that because of my mom's beauty, that someone had taken her and it was this fear, please God, don't let my mom be a victim of sexual assault. It never occurred to many of us, I should say, that there, what other reason would there be? Local and national press swarm the area, and dozens of people contact investigators and Beverly's family with tips and theories of where Beverly may be. They had, you know, all of the sheriff's officials. They had ATVs, people in the community, a number of real estate agents, some who knew her well and others who didn't know her at all showed up to canvas the area. There are fields out in that area because it was a rural area so there were houses and then fields walking through these murky swampy rodent snaky just uh fields trying to find any evidence of her and the possibilities for where she could be were so endless and felt so hopeless police began looking through her computer and some cell phone records to try to figure out if they could learn who it was that she showed that house to. They thought that person might know, or persons might know, something about where she was. Police do find a phone number, but it's an anonymous one, encrypted through an app. Investigators are able to subpoena the real phone number, and it leads them to Crystal and Aaron Lewis. Police arrest Aaron, who is unwilling to surrender any information. Aaron Lewis is 33 years old at the time. He's on parole and has a history of theft. His wife, Crystal, is 41. Aaron works at a cement storage plant where officers are dispatched to see if they can find any trace of Beverly. An initial search uncovers a terrible discovery. Beverly is found dead, her head and neck wrapped in lime green duct tape, and she's buried in a shallow grave. I lost my brother when I was a young adult. It was in my early 20s. And so I know what it's like to get the call in the middle of the night. I think I always thought that because this horrific thing happened to my brother, that like our family has met the quota for bad stuff. And so whenever I learned that 
like mom's been found and mom is is dead like like my brother um it's like no 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 like why why like she was such a good person like it is disbelief um i think in a lot of ways a numb a numb feeling that uh has never gone away i think when i found out that my mom had been murdered a part of me died with her i think uh, a part of all of my family uh did Aaron Lewis is charged with capital murder and kidnapping. He pleads not guilty and begins preparing for his trial. For the longest time leading up to the trial, he was going to self, uh, he was going to represent himself legally. And so he had access to a lot of, of the evidence, including my mom's medical autopsy, which is really important and also really sick. He took every bit of that evidence and he tried to make a story that would work. And so the story is outlandish as it is. The premise was that he and his wife had been having a sexual relationship with my mom and that they were meeting different places to carry this torrid affair out all under the guise of showing properties and that my mom ultimately died during a sexual act with his wife. You destroyed all of our lives. You took the matriarch from our family. And now you're going to to try to save yourself. You're going to make up a story that that would just slander our name. And even if just even one person, it put a, a seed of doubt that what if, I, it just, I couldn't have it. And so I began doing everything that I could to just be my mom's voice to be a witness for her character and so up to the the trial and including the trial itself police had arrested Aaron's wife Crystal a month after he was arrested and prosecutors were able to negotiate a plea deal with her her full testimony for a reduced sentence of 30 years with the possibility of parole Carl recounts her testimony to the court of what actually happened that day in late September. Their plan was to have my mom record these videos telling my dad how and to get the money to them. And unlike the movies, which would have been much simpler, where you, you know, bring this ransom money in a briefcase, you know, the town square, and we make the exchange, their plan was to, based upon that previous crime where he still had that skimmer, was to have my dad push all of this perceived wealth to accounts that were accessible via the cards that were in my mom's purse. The unfortunate thing is in this this awful man's haste to tase my mama and tape her and put her in the trunk of his car and drive away. And I should add, before he even drives away, takes time to pull out his cell phone to take a picture of my mom in the trunk of his car and text it to his wife. But while doing all those things, he forgot the one thing that he needed to be able to get the money. He left my mom's purse behind. It's standard practice for females within real estate not to show property for safety and security reasons with purse on their shoulder. And so mom following that protocol, it had actually foiled his whole plan that he never considered. He had taken my mom to 
to where the, the bad guys lived. And they had locked my mom in their bathroom. And they began this initial freak out over needing a purse. And so he gives his wife, you know, a handgun and says, guard the door. She tries to come out, shoot her. I'm going to go get the purse. And so that night, whenever he came back out to the property, to after realizing that he had forgotten the purse, he found that, oh my gosh, there's the family. There are all these cops. And he begins to panic. Like, how did people know where she was? How, how are they closing in so fast? And then gets home in a full-on panic. And he and his wife make the decision together that the whole thing needs to go away, that it's not going to work out. And so instead of just releasing them, they... Uh, made the choice to end her life. The trial concludes after three days. The jury leaves the courtroom to deliberate, leaving Carl and his family to wait. You know, I've always seen and never understood when you when you watch a movie or you're watching, you know, whatever, you know, jury part of a, or a um, sentence is being handed down and, or a verdict is being read and you see the family kind of fall apart. You know, it's kind of this this very physical reaction to the verdict to be read. You know, I was still kind of getting my thoughts around and being mindful and prayerful for what I was going to say for the victim impact statement. And they rushed into the room and they said, the jury has, they've made the decision. And it had only been 45 minutes. And so when they, they came into the room and, and they said that, you know, for capital murder, guilty, I was all of those people that I've, all those families that I've never understood why the physical reaction, I suddenly became that. Every emotion at once, like from you want to take off running, you want to jump up and down, you also kind of want to just fall on the floor. Aaron Lewis is sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole, one for capital murder and the other for kidnapping. Now, six years after his mother's murder, Carl has begun a nonprofit that educates real estate agents and firms on personal safety and provides real world tools to help protect those within the industry. So, what started as me defending my mom's character and telling her side of the story and really setting, setting truth out to her life and to the, the actual case itself or how we lost her? Um, became kind of a natural transition like into other real estate agents began to not only reach out as friends but also just reach out to say you know Carl I thank you for standing up for your mom and you know and and they would offer up their own stories of times that they have been victimized and and I've, I've met agent after agent that had, you know, whether it's they were conducting an open house and someone came through and stole all of the seller's prescription drugs, you know, offenses like that all the way, you know, to, to stalking, assault, and rapes. And I really felt like my mom's story could help save lives. And so really from then on, I have had the, the biggest passion for um for the safety of loan workers like real estate agents and traveling nurses and people that are just doing a good job out on their own. It keeps my mother's death from just being this event that happened and then our family just has to work through alone. 
it, it's this is an extension of my mom and in a way it's uh it's a way that she could still live on for vault studios i'm will johnson i'm here with spencer brudig spencer wow what a story i mean th- hearing her son talk in such detail about what happened and what they learned and the trial and the verdict it's all just i mean that that's a powerful story yeah and it's not often that we get to hear from family members in general but then also the fact that he was in the area and he actually took part in searching for his mother the initial you know going out to that house that they knew where she would be i, I know it's so visceral and awful for him yeah absolutely wild and then on top of it, he talks about the fact that, and you don't go into it, but that he lost uh, another family member as well. It wasn't the first time he got a phone call like that. Yeah, I think that it was a really poignant line where he talked about, you know, that he had felt the quota for horrible traumatic events within his family had, you know, that they had fulfilled that with his brother passing away when he was a young adult, um, I think, you know, over a decade ago. And then to have your mother be killed in such a senseless way, uh, I know, just just awful. And then you've got this whole element of the the suspect eventually convicted of the of the murder, but coming up with this awful story. And I, I mean, it has these twists and turns that just don't that boggle the mind. Right, and and there was even another um, story that Carl Jr. told where you know during the trial, uh, Aaron Lewis would be eating candy. They kept bringing in these trays of candy for him to consume during his, you know, this trial for capital murder and kidnapping and him just eating it, you know, just feet from the family, the kind of disrespect that Carl took that as. And he talked about how when they showed the images of Beverly's body, um, that Aaron contorted himself to be able to see it at a different angle because they weren't showing, you know, the entire audience and him. So, you know, just, just, uh, we oftentimes, you know, kind of stop with the trial. Oh, the investigators either weren't able to find this person or they did. And that's the end. But, you know, the, the trauma that continues in the trial and having to, you know, your life is put on display for everyone. The life of your family members is put on display. Uh, it's, it's a lot. They were able to track him down using, a cell phone number, right? I mean, they, they use cell technology or something like that to then find his location. I mean, it seems like the actual search and the arrest were not that complicated. No, there was something to do with him getting involved in an accident, and he a picture was taken of him um, either the day after that uh, Beverly's disappearance, and someone wrote down his license plate number after they were able to subpoena the real phone number from the encryption app. Uh, the FBI actually got involved and helped with that. They then were able to track that number back to this guy, and on top of it, they had an image and a, a license plate from uh, some sort of traffic incident that had happened the day after, or. or a couple of days after. And so that kind of, for some reason, linked 
in their minds. And they went and picked him up and started talking with him. And he was, according to Carl Jr., very unhelpful. And he kind of sent them in a a number of different wild goose chases. And uh, Carl said that he felt like he was playing games, that Aaron was playing games with the police. And then the police were able to connect him uh, to this cement manufacturing facility slash storage place. And it was at that place where they then discovered uh, Beverly's body in a shallow grave. Spencer, I know that our listeners might want to talk about this one and have some questions for you. If they'd like to do that, they can go to our Facebook group inside the Crime Vault, right? Yeah, we have uh, almost 5,000 members that discuss true crime cases. Um, and it's a, it's a good place to discuss you know the cases that you listen to on True Crime Chronicles, and other Vault Studios productions. All right, Spencer, thanks for bringing us this story this week. Nicely done. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.